0: Well, again, good morning, everyone. For those of you who have been a part of City as we're moving into the summer, you realize that we are in a sermon series that's on the Gospel of Mark. There are four Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we are in the Gospel of Mark, which is actually the shortest of all the Gospels. It's kind of a, what you would call a reader's digest version of the life of Jesus and has within it what is mission critical to understand. To follow Jesus. The other thing is, is that this sermon series from the Gospel of Mark is very specifically for the purpose of faith in the real world. Faith in the real world. And if you're here this morning and you're kind of checking out faith, you've met someone who is a follower of Jesus and you have questions or you're kind of here this morning checking out who Jesus is, I really want to encourage you to know that the Gospel of Mark is written for you. It's one of those gospels that's there, again, that has the primary, but pretty much only those ingredients that you need to know and the stories that need to absorb your heart in order to follow Jesus. Here at City, our mission statement is simple. Follow Jesus, serve others. That's what our purpose is. And we do that by focusing on three, three things. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, and spirit-led church. Biblically based means is that we look at the scriptures, and we discern what God says to us through scripture. The idea of of that is, is that we base the life of City Church on biblical realities. The other thing is, we're relationally driven, which means that relationship is the most important thing in life. Jesus said it this way, love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What that means is, is that relationship is the most important thing there is. Our relationship with God and our relationships with, peers, uh, with people. Spirit-led means that we know, the Bible tells us, and we've experienced that God has sent his Holy Spirit to empower us to live out what we learn and to live out the relationships of our lives. So this morning's sermon is basically going to be about this, Jesus had a family. Not that he was married. He was part of a family. And what we're going to discover as we look at the Gospel of Mark is that the idea that Jesus had a mother, brothers and sisters, he had a stepdad, Joseph, of sorts. He was his stepdad. But it's pretty clear, biblically, that his father, his earthly father, his stepdad, as you might say, was off the scene by the time Jesus began his, his earthly ministry. But as we look at the idea of Jesus having a family or being part of a family like you and I are, I want to begin by recapping very briefly last week. Last week I talked about the power of forgiveness. There were people that communicated with me after and talked about how the forgiveness that Jesus extends to sinners... And recognizing that they are one of them, and oftentimes when we think of sinners, we point to other people. Last week's message was about how Jesus, if he came to Charlottesville and on his his Twitter feed said, I'm coming to Charlottesville, I'm going to offer forgiveness, kind of that inaugural forgiveness event, many of us would encourage him to look in one of two places. Maybe it would be at a frat house on grounds in the fall. Or... It would be at the county jail. That's where you ought to go look. And what we find is Jesus offers forgiveness in a home, in a home, to people who are very religious people. And it's there that he offers forgiveness to a paralyzed man. Now, a story that I did not get to last week is going to help us to move into the primary reality of this sermon, and it's this. Is that after Jesus forgives the paralyzed man... He exit that, exits that house in Mark chapter 2, and the Bible tells us that Jesus goes down by the lake. He is now in Capernaum, which is a little seaside village in Israel. I've been there many times. And he leaves that little village, and he goes down along the lake, which is also known as the Lake of Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is walking next to the lake. And in Mark chapter 2, we kind of pick up a story from Mark chapter two before we step into Mark chapter three. I want us to read it together. Here's the story. It says, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Do you notice that there's this invitation Jesus brings, follow me. I noticed that as a preteen boy. Jesus didn't go up to people and say, there's six doctrines you need to believe in order to follow me. He doesn't say that. Jesus came up to people and said, follow me. That's why the mission, vision, and purpose of Jesus is to follow Jesus and serve others. Jesus goes up to this tax collector and says, follow me. And it says, and Levi got up. He followed him. what we would need to know, and it's not obvious in the Gospel of Mark, is that Levi is actually Matthew, who writes the Gospel of Matthew. And the Bible tells us here that Levi, or Matthew, is a tax collector, which means this, he's a sinner. Matthew is a sinner. Levi is a sinner. And here's why. In ancient Israel... The ultimate way to, be, to betray Israel would be to collect taxes for Rome. And that's what Levi's doing. He's there in the seaside village where Jesus has set up his base of operations for his three and a half year earthly ministry. And here he is and Jesus is coming along the lakeshore and that's where the merchandise would travel and you've got this guy named Levi and he's taking taxes from Jews for Rome. He's a Benedict Arnold to the people of God and to the nation of Israel. And who does Jesus choose in the Gospel of Mark to be his first disciple? It's Levi. He doesn't go to some righteous guy. He goes to a sinner by the name of Levi. And he says, follow me. And Levi gets up and he does. Now, as we read on, we're going to discover not only does he follow Jesus, but he throws Jesus a party in his house. Let's read on. Verse 15. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." Now, the question has to be, if you're thinking a person, you're a thinking person, why did Levi or Matthew, why did he get up from behind the tax collector's booth and follow Jesus? Why? Almost all commentators will tell you this, that the reason why he got up to follow Jesus because there was a Jewish man who truly loved him and didn't swear at him, didn't cuss him out, didn't get angry with him, didn't look at him with a scowl on his face because he was collecting taxes from Jews for Rome. There was finally a religious leader who when he walked by his tax collector booth stopped and loved him for who he was. And then he said, get up and follow me. You know, we often talk about in this whole series is about faith in the real world. Well, listen, Probably the closest thing I could think of for being a tax collector like Levi would be that person that puts tickets on your car when your meter runs out. How many of us love to hate that person? Right? When you see them, you think to yourself, how could they ever do that job? That is the worst job in the world. I remember in Princeton when we were serving in ministry there, that the meter maid, that's what she called her, the meter maid got beat up at a meter once for giving a ticket. Little did that person know that she was kind of dubbed as a police officer. And it was a federal offense to beat up a police officer. And well, it ought to be, right? Well, here Jesus is. He walks up to the meter maid To the ticket giver the person who takes money you don't want to give and jesus walks up to him and says will you follow me and levi goes if there's a spiritual leader like jesus who doesn't hate my guts because of what i've done i'm going to follow him and that's why levi gets up the writer of the gospel of matthew gets up and he follows jesus And in the closing sentence of that episode, Jesus announces why he came. He didn't come for healthy people. He came for sinners, those that need God. That's why he's here. We take that story from Mark chapter 2, and we now move towards Mark chapter 3. And in Mark chapter 3, what we discover is, is much like the healing of the paralytic where we looked at forgiveness last week, Jesus is again in a house. And the house is so crowded that he and his disciples can't even eat. Let's pick up our reading now in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 22. Here's what the Bible tells us. The heading says, Jesus accused by his family and by the teachers of the law. Yes, Jesus had an earthly family that he was a part of. Verse 20 tells us this. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. My dad said that about me several times. How about you? Kids, out of his mind. Reading on it says, and the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, which is another phrase for Satan, and by the prince of demons he is driving out demons. I want you to catch this. By Mark chapter 3, Jesus' own family thinks that he is nuts and the theological leaders think that he's demon possessed. What a great way to start your ministry. So here's Jesus. The theological leaders say he's theologically off. He's evil. That's what they're beginning to say. He's been healing people, he healed the paralytic, he's been casting out demons, he's been doing all of these incredible works. But the theological leadership looks at him and says, nope, he only does that because the demon in him is more powerful than the demons he's casting out. And then his family, they come up with a psychological assessment. The teachers of the law bring a theological assessment. His own family brings a psychological assessment. And they say, he's nuts. I want you to notice in the story... It told us in verse 21 that they have come to take charge of him. In other words, Jesus, you can't run your own life, so now we need to step in. And the question has to be, why? Why did they come to understand that Jesus is out of his mind? One reason is because he's eating with sinners. No righteous Jew would ever break bread with a known sinner. Because in ancient Jewish culture, if I said to you, hey, I'd like to meet you at Zinburger and we're gonna grab a burger together, if I said that, it wasn't just an overture of, hey, let's get to know each other. It's an overture of true friendship. And if you're seen eating with someone, you are identifying with them. And no righteous person, no teacher of the law would ever dream of sitting down and eating with a tax collector, and yet Jesus is in a home that's filled with them. He's hanging out, eating cheeseburgers with sinners. It's an amazing thought. So his family shows up to set him straight. It says they're going to take charge of him. Can you imagine trying to take charge of the Son of God? How do you even do that? Well, his whole family is there, and they've come to take charge of him. Here's what I want to say at the very beginning. And this is where we're going to go deep into faith in a real world. Here's what it is. Is that in the ancient world, family was the center of all culture. Most of you, if you had lived in Jesus' day, you would never leave the village in which you were born. Your family would be the epicenter of your life. What they thought about you, their perspective on you, would be everything. And now Jesus' family has determined he's not. And it's because he's eating with sinners and it's also because he's been breaking the Sabbath by healing people on the Sabbath. I want you to know that I know of people, because of their walk with Jesus, their families have put pressure on them to not do that. Recently, I've been reading a book that a friend of mine gave to a group of men that I serve with. It's an incredible book. It's written by Eric Metaxas, and it's it's entitled Seven Men. Men, I encourage you to get this book and read it. It's seven brief stories about seven men who changed history. One of them is a man by the name of William Wilberforce. He was born in 1759 and he died in 1833. William Wilberforce was part of a wealthy aristocratic family in England. It was a time in England where following Jesus was really frowned upon. You could go to church, but don't take it any further than church. So William Wilberforce is born into a very wealthy family, and his dad dies when he's young. His mom isn't healthy, so his mega-wealthy grandfather sends him to go live with some relatives a little distance away, and they're raising him. But his mega-wealthy grandfather, who was part of the aristocratic elite of London, didn't realize that the family members that he was sending William to go live with, they called him Billy when he was young, were these Christians who really put Jesus first. Jesus was first. And what they would do in their home was they would bring in preachers to preach to the super-wealthy that they knew. It was called parlor-preaching. So they would open up their mansion, they would invite wealthy people, and these wealthy people would come and preach. Well, some of the preachers you've heard of, the Wesley brothers. You've also heard of John Newton. John Newton wrote that famous hymn called Amazing Grace. You see, he had been a slave trader who had brutalized people from Africa for years. When Jesus got a hold of him, his life was absolutely transformed. And he writes that powerful hymn, Amazing Grace. Well, John Newton was one of the parlor preachers that would come to little Billy Wilberforce's uh, relative's home. So for two years, he was in that home being raised. And then his mega-wealthy grandfather heard. He heard that Billy was hearing this preaching and had come to believe And his wealthy aristocratic grandfather said he will never get a dime if he follows Jesus, never. And he went and had him taken out of that family. He brought him back to London and he gave him the most elite aristocratic experience you could ever have. Not long after that, Billy begins to be known as William Wilberforce. He kind of moves away from his faith because of all the parties and the wealth and the luxury and the gentlemen's clubs. And he begins to live that lifestyle. And at the young age of 20, after going to Cambridge, he was elected to Parliament at the age of 20. Well, the amazing thing is, by the age of 24, his best friend, who's also 24, becomes elected as the Prime Minister of England. And at about that time, He develops a new friendship and the friendship is with the guy who's the smartest dude on the planet he sits in the chair at Cambridge University that is given to the smartest guy alive and that guy is a Christian who keeps Jesus first and through a series of events William Wilberforce begins to put Jesus first and because of that slavery is finally abolished As he puts Jesus first, he begins to realize the horrors of racism and how evil slavery is. And the primary purpose that God calls him for in Parliament is to see that slavery is eradicated in England. Three days before he dies, he gets the message that Parliament has finally voted to make all slavery illegal. Now here's the point that I'm trying to make. He was in a family, and his grandfather said, if you follow Jesus like the Methodists do, I'm going to cut you off. And yet over time, Jesus got a hold of his life. Now here's what I want to say. There are many of us who are part of a family where you know that following Jesus won't be supported. You're in great company. Because Jesus wasn't supported by his either. Can you imagine that? His own brothers, mothers, and mother, and sisters show up to tell him he's nuts. Jesus, you need to back off. You're taking the God thing a little too seriously. Let's rein it in. Can you imagine? Now, others of us sitting here, though, I know you come from very supportive families. I know this. They're excited for you to walk with Jesus. But my question would be, let's say that you're part of a family, unlike Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry that is kind of actually opposing what God's calling him to do. Maybe you're in a work environment where your boss and your boss's opinion is so important to you. What your boss thinks of you and the availability for your boss to promote you. So, being a follower of Jesus is something you're trying to keep off the radar. Some of us may be the most important influence in our lives because, in the day of Jesus, your family was the most important influence. Now, maybe it's your friends. Your friends. Where you know what? It's similar to the days of England where just keep Jesus on Sunday. Don't let him get into the rest of the week. Don't take him too seriously. And you sense in your heart that your friends would say the same thing. But your, their opinion of you is more important than keeping Jesus first. I can also tell you that we live in a culture that over the past 60 years has switched. Switched. To where being a Christian and a follower of Jesus was something that was admired, and now it's something that means that what you have to say isn't worth hearing. Our culture has shifted, and yet here we see a clear example of people that are coming against Jesus. It's not just the religious elite, but it's also his own brothers, sisters, and his mother. They think he's crazy. You know, full confession, I'm a pastor, if you didn't notice. And we live in a culture where I ask people at City not to introduce me as a pastor. It's not that I'm ashamed of it, it's just I see the look on people's faces when they hear I am a pastor. Someone from city will walk up and introduce me to a friend or a group of their friends and they'll say, hey, this is Pete, he's my pastor, and you can feel the silence hit the room. And you know what everyone's thinking? Did I tell a dirty joke yet? Have I sworn yet? Have I, and they just do all this mental math, and then always someone will blurt out, I had a cousin three times removed that was married to this other guy who, and he was a Pastor. And I think to myself, what does that have to do with anything that we're talking about at all? Nothing, absolutely nothing. And you know the reason why is 60 years ago, if I'd have walked into a room and said, hey, I'm a pastor, it would have been positive. Now it's a negative. It is. But so is following Jesus. But isn't it amazing that even Jesus experienced this tension from his own family? and from the religious leaders who, oh, by the way, were also the political leaders of Israel at that time. But here's what we find as we pick up our reading. In Mark 3:31 through 35, here's how the gospel story um, continues. Remember, Jesus is in a home. The religious leaders say he has a powerful demon. That's why he can cast out demons. His mother and his brothers are there and they're going to get charge of him. They're going to kind of smack him upside his head and say, Jesus, knock it off. Too serious. Back off a little bit. And we pick up our reading in Mark chapter 3 verse 31 and here's what it says. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call on him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And what does Jesus say? Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. And then he looked at those in a, seated in a circle around him, and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the, God's will is my brother and sister and mother. It's pretty amazing. You see, what Jesus is beginning to bring out to us in the gospel of Mark when we talk about faith in the real world is just because you are naturally related to a Christian, it doesn't make you one. Jesus' mother and brothers are there, and Jesus is making a concrete announcement that even his mother and his brothers and his sisters must personally come to faith for themselves. That just because they are naturally related to Jesus does not mean that they're right with God. And the Jewish faith has been based upon for centuries the following thing. If you are born into the right tribe of Israel, you're in. It's about who you're born to and how your lineage can be traced. Well, wouldn't you think that if anyone gets a front row seat in being right with God, it would have to be Jesus' mother, brothers, and sisters. Wouldn't you agree? And Jesus says, Who are my, who's my mother? Who's my brother? Who are my sisters? Those that do the will of God. In other words, those that have come to faith for themselves. There's no secondhand Christianity. It's all firsthand, it's personal decision, it's personal experience. And Jesus is going to begin to share this. And ultimately what Jesus is teaching is that there's a whole new kind of a family that he's going to build. It's one that will be connected through him and it won't always be a natural one. Now I want to be very careful in telling you this. Jesus is not diminishing the importance of family. He's absolutely not doing that. What he is saying, though, is that he, in his kingdom, is starting a new kind of family. And that'll be a family that's brought together in faith. Now, personally, I know what it's like to have to struggle with what Jesus has called me to do and be. My father and I have mentioned this before. My dad's one of my heroes. My dad was not a follower of Jesus when I was called into the ministry. My dad and I would talk often about what my career might be, what my career might look like. I often told my dad I wanted to go go to be an attorney because I knew he'd be proud of that. He'd be happy with that. So that's what I told him. He actually wanted me to be an engineer because that's what he was. The problem was I was horrible at math. How many of you know what I'm talking about? There are certain things God does not call me to do and one of them's math. Because if he had, he would have gifted me for it, and he didn't. So I avoid math. That's why I studied for the ministry. Look, math doesn't even work in Christianity. Three equals one, so there. It's just kind of, you don't need math, right? And so I go off, and I can remember going to my dad and saying, Hey, Dad, listen, I feel a call into ministry. You should have seen the look on his face. It probably would have been more palatable for him if I told him I was going to go be a Martian. He just looked at me and said, what? So, said, Dad, he didn't go to church. He had no perspective or paradigm for it at all. I said, Dad, I feel a call into the ministry. He said, really? What? What? He had no, par- no framework at all. And it actually worked in my favor. Because after four years of undergrad and really studying for ministry and prepping for ministry, I was finished with that. My father still wasn't a believer. And I was graduating from undergrad, and I went to my dad, and I said, Hey, Dad, I'm thinking about going to grad school. And he said, What do you want to study? I said, I'd like to do a master's in psychology. And he said, Well, I'll pay for that for sure, because that's real. Clearly, what he said, psychology's real. Did you hear that? Psychology is real more than ministry is, right? So he said, I'll pay for that. So that worked in my favor, God provided. And I went off to grad school and it was in my second year of grad school that my dad came to faith. Then it made sense to him. But I know what it's like to be called to follow Jesus at a certain level where the people around you just can't really do the math on it. They can't figure it out. But I want to be clear about this. Jesus is not diminishing family at all. What he is saying, though, is whether it's family, culture, your friends, your boss, whatever it is, there has to be a place where, yes, that's important, but Jesus is calling for you and for me to allow him to have priority in our lives. It's more important. He's number one. Now, in this... In Mark chapter 7, verses 8 through 13, I want to show you how Jesus does not diminish family, and yet he defends it at a level that no one was during his time. So in Mark chapter 7, verses 8 through 13, there's this episode that we're going to read together. And the Bible tells us, the context is, is that these religious leaders have come back again to hound him for how he's walking with God. And here's what Jesus says to them. Verse 8. He says, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. In other words, there are laws in the Older Testament that God gives to Moses. But what often happens in relig- religious leadership, if it's rules and not relationship, the rules get bigger and larger and more frequent and more invasive. And by the time of Jesus, they had what was called these human traditions. It's where they had built on top of the law of God, and there were all of these things that you were supposed to do. Reading on in verse 9, it says, And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own tradition. For Moses said, One of the Ten Commandments honor your father and mother. You see, when we listen to Jesus saying, these people are my my brothers and my sisters, it would seem as though he's undermining family. He's not. Here it says, Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to to death. That's the law of Moses. Verse 11. But you say, speaking to the religious leaders, but you say that if anyone declares what might be used to help their father or mother is Corbin. In other words, that is devoted to God. Then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you handed down and you do many things like that. In other words, when Jesus is confronting the religious leaders... He chooses to use a scenario of family that they are undermining that Jesus actually supports. And here's what's being supported here it is. It's the idea that in Jewish tradition, if you knew you were supposed to help your parents financially in their old age, you would take your money, you would meet with a priest, and you would say, See all this money? It's Corbin. It's dedicated to God. And really what it was, was kind of like a delayed giving to the temple. So I would look at all my money, I would gather with the priest and say, all this money is Corbin. When I die, I'm going to give it to the temple. And the priest had started this tradition so that they could get money from people. And so instead of obeying one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, you would declare all your money, Corbin, as given to God, and you would give them nothing. And they would starve. And Jesus chooses that example to show how messed up the religious leadership is. And he says, instead of obeying one of the Ten Commandments that says honor mom and dad, you turn everyone's money into Corbin so you can get it later while the parents starve. Listen, Jesus calls us to be people that are serious about our families. We're serious about culture. We're serious about our friends. We're serious about our jobs. We're serious about all of these things. But what this shows us is, and what this gospel story tells us in Mark chapter 3, is that Jesus is to take priority over all of those things. All of them. You would be comforted to know that the last time that we see Jesus' mother and brothers and sisters is in the book of Acts, and they're following Jesus. They're listed right there as following him. But it's clear that it took time for them to get to the point where they were going to put him first. Another thing that strikes me so much in my heart about the story from Mark chapter 3 is that the last sentence we read, the last one was this, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. What's fascinating about verse 33 is that that story began not by mentioning sisters and mentions his brother, and his mother but not sisters. And when Jesus talks about the new family that He's going to build, he announces that whoever to God does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. That's very moving for me. And ladies, what you need to know at the very beginning of Jesus building his family, he makes a clear announcement that he is assuming and even calling for ladies to be key in his kingdom. It's an important thing to catch. Because again, the, biggest, the beginning of the story mentions his mother and his brothers. It says nothing about sisters. But Jesus makes sure that he includes it in the end. When we talk about faith for the real world, I want to challenge you this morning. I want to challenge you the following way. Some of you have a call to pastoral ministry and you know it. But because culture doesn't heap on the accolades, you have backed away. Keep Jesus first. Some of you are a part of a family that's not supportive. Please keep Jesus first. Some of us who are parents have kids that God is calling and we're acting more like Mary and his brothers and his sisters and we're discouraging it instead of encouraging it. And the reason why is because of us and our pride. Look, I know what it's like to sit as a dad and people get around and they say, Pete, tell us what your son is doing. And I tell them, well, my son is called to be a theologian. And I see the look on their face. What a shame. And they'll chime in, my kid's going to be a lawyer. And I thought, I've been there. I know exactly what that's like. And I'm not saying being a lawyer is a bad thing. I'm not saying being called to do anything else is a bad thing. That's not what I'm saying. But if Jesus is tapping your heart. For pastoral ministry I want to challenge you to surrender to him our culture won't cheer you on but Jesus will and for others of us you know that Jesus has been calling you to share your faith in ways that you haven't before our culture won't clap your friends might not cheer you on there's people that are gonna say what they said to William Wilberforce keep it on Sunday morning William you're getting too serious Just remember that Jesus' own mother and his own brothers were saying the same thing. Jesus, keep it down a little. Now, what I'm not saying is that you get weird and that you go to work and you stand on your desk with a Bible and begin to scream. It's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is prioritizing Jesus, that he's first in your life and that you're gonna follow him in Jesus' name.